0: TRP Podcast listeners, thank you for carving out some of your day to listen to this sermon. This is from our ongoing sermon series, James the Sage. This is week 11, uh, and this week we will be continuing in chapter 3. I'll read a handful of verses, and then we'll get right to it. This says, uh, James 3, beginning in verse 13, it says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, and peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. The word of God for the people of God. Now, there's, there's a danger in preaching through entire books of the Bible like we do at TRP. I, I'm not blaming you per se, but because none of you want to sit here for hours and hours as Susie and I unpack all of the intricacies of an ancient text, we are forced to break the book up into weekly sermon-sized blocks. Think about it. This is week 11 of a sermon series on a letter that is only five chapters long. If we were just to read the book through in its entirety uh, every week, it would only take us 30 minutes or so to do that. How much more meaningful and helpful might it be for us to gather and for us to read this book in its entirety 10 or 12 times? 30, 30 minutes? That, that's how long it takes me to talk about six verses on most weeks. When, and when we do this, when we break texts down like this, we uh, leave ourselves open to the danger of forcing the the passage to lose its coherence, its cohesion, its, its unity. So when James opens with the question, who is wise and understanding among you, we might be tempted to think James is talking about something brand new, like it's just a random piece of wisdom for his audience to consider. And a lot of people will actually uh, approach James this way. Remember, it's the Proverbs of the New Testament in the minds of of most some scholars however think this line is connected to what precedes it and i think they're onto something it's it's a reference back to the beginning of chapter 3 where james is discussing teachers and leaders in the community and the importance of their words. Remember James 3 verse 1, it says, Not many of you should be teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. This seems to be the introduction for this entire section of teaching that is focused upon the misdeeds of those in power, those who are teaching and instructing and leading the community. To make this link back to what precedes, scholars argue that the terms wise and understanding in verse 13, which we just read, are often used to describe teachers in the Bible. Who is wise and understanding among you, it says. Those terms are often used to describe teachers. For example, there's an Old Testament text in the book of Deuteronomy that says, choose some wise, understanding, and respected men from each of your tribes, and I will set them over you. So then Moses takes the leading men from the tribes who were wise and respected men. As a result of, of this connection with regard to the vocabulary, when James uses the terms wise and understanding, it could be seen as a link to the important authoritative figures in the community. James is seen as writing a much longer unified section on teachers not sowing seeds of division in their speech, not inspiring disorder and every evil practice, not instigating fights and quarrels, all things that we have seen in this larger section. Instead, James says that leaders should show their wisdom and understanding by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. Now, all of this is is just par for the course for James, right? Throughout his letter, he has exhorted his audience, whether it focuses on leaders and teachers or anyone else, to live out their beliefs, to not just hear the word, but to do it, to practice faith, uh, providing good evidence of it in the things that we do. For faith leaders, you can't claim to be wise and understanding and then not live it out according to James's thinking worse, you can't claim to be wise and understanding while also harboring bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart because these things, according to James, do not go together. In the words of my mother, you can't claim to be wise and understanding and also be a clod because it will only serve to derail the community that you lead. As James notes, it will lead to disorder and every evil practice. Leaders, they have the power of influence. We all know this intuitively. What they say and do matters. When I preached this sermon in person, I had an anecdote about my days of playing baseball as a kid. And I remember that as I was learning how to play baseball, I had a very influential coach in my life and his words mattered. One day uh, during a game, I struck out and I went back to the dugout. I took off my helmet and I threw it as, as hard as I could. It skipped off the cement floor and kind of ricocheted in the corner. And from third base, as he was coaching, he turned around and just reamed me out. You will never throw your equipment ever again what he said, it mattered. And I I did my best, at least while playing for him, not to throw my helmet. I don't remember if I ever did ever again. I have a a terrible temper, so I'm sure I pitched a fit of, of some magnitude. But at least when I was with him, those words, they never left. When we connect this passage in James to what has preceded it, We recall how much power our speech practices actually have, how an an affirmation of violent outburst, how a sharp criticism that is rooted in envy, how a contentious word spoken against another community, a competing ideal, a different reading of the Bible, how any of these scenarios can function as the bit that leads the horse or the rudder that steers the ship or the spark that begins the flame, to use James's imagery. None of this clearly is befitting a leader. And I can absolutely admit my own failings. I have lived here at times. In our world of social media and immediate access to information that's liked and shared, it is hard to mute the voices of comparison in my own mind. I don't want to bring any of you down to my level, but when I look at the success of others, especially those in in my field, this was much more prevalent uh, when I was a student and I could see the opportunities, the... um, The opportunities for publication or further schooling that my classmates were receiving that might have been way more prestigious than anything that that I was getting at the time, how that would mess with with my brain and how it would lead just to to envy and and distort the relationships that I did or did not have with these people. James clarifies this even further. It's, It's a bitter envy a self-oriented desire to possess things that are not really ours, like acclaim or praise or success or job opportunities or opportunities for publication or the aforementioned likes and shares online. Once these feelings of inadequacy take root, it's hard to reject what comes next, which is usually the urge to talk in backhanded ways about what we are envious about. The easiest thing that we can do is criticize, to demean, to say, you know what I heard about this? Can you believe that? In a stinging admonition, James writes, such wisdom, such learning, such intelligence, such discord or criticism or contention or envy and ambition, it doesn't come from heaven. It's entirely earthly. It's unspiritual. It's it's demonic, he says. Now let, let that sink in for a second. Something that we do is demonic. Our our tactics for self-preservation, when it involves criticizing and diminishing and sowing seeds of discord, whether we're in a leadership position or not, it's demonic. This word only occurs here in the New Testament, and it serves as a stark contrast to the wisdom that James will soon explain. And I really think that's the point here is to have this, this contrast I know for some of us, our church background might lead us to think about actual demons um, leading us astray or actual demons uh, tempting us in certain ways. Uh, That's not really what James is is after here. It's more of a, a literary device to show the differences between a heavenly wisdom and a earthly wisdom. James writes, But the wisdom that comes from heaven, that is, the wisdom that is not demonic, it's first of all pure, it's peace-loving, it's considerate, it's submissive, it's full of mercy and good fruit, it's impartial and sincere. Scott McKnight writes, A simple summary of what James teaches in this passage is, A wise teacher is one who creates godly, loving peace in the community. It's not someone who tears down and demolishes. It's not someone who does not recognize the influence or the power of their words. It's not someone who will set aflame an entire forest, so to speak. We can certainly pause here and consider our churches. Have our leaders, and you can include me in this, have our leaders created a godly, loving peace that typifies church. Within TRP, have, have me and the other elders, have we created this, this sort of scenario? Have our leaders given in to their base desires to compare and diminish and critique and fight for self-preservation if, if you're listening and you don't identify TRP as your community of faith, then, then what about your pastors and your faith leaders? Are they creating this space? Are they working for peace? Or are they building up their own kingdoms? You could also apply this to the podcasts that you listen to, the, uh, the Twitter feeds that you follow. Are these people using their voice for good? Or are they just chaotically throwing random people under the bus? Now, that's, that's that's one way to read this passage and, and one line of application that we might take. I would say that it's a pretty good one, and it fits within the context of what James is actually after. Uh, this, I would also suggest, it, it might be missed when we divvy up the text into its component parts so that me and Susie aren't standing up here for 15 hours straight trying to teach through the entire book. That would be well, actually, that wouldn't be a terrible podcast. It'd be a terrible sermon, uh, but, you know, 15 hours or so of Bible teaching, I'd be into that. I don't know about you, but I, but I would. But still, there's another way to read this passage. Put simply, it's, it's not just for teachers and leaders, maybe not anymore, in other words, this this reading that goes beyond its original context, it puts you on the hook just as much as it does me and Susie and the other elders and whoever it is that's leading your faith community. And that's not to get us uh, off the hook. It's to bring more people on the hook. It, it all sounds very familiar, doesn't it? regardless of your role in the community, we can identify with these temptations. Just like leaders, we compare, we become envious, we want what others have, we criticize, we demean, we dehumanize people on our screens, people on our ballots, people in our lives. And usually it's, it's all in an attempt to be okay, to feel okay, to not be envious of what others have, to measure up in our own minds if nothing else. The temptation is there for all of us, which is why some scholars say, you know, this passage, it can't just be about leaders. It's about anyone who claims to be wise and have understanding because regardless of one's role, this wisdom has to show fruit in the real world. Many of the same scholars also say that what precedes our passage is about everyone, not just teachers and leaders. So when James writes, not many of you should become teachers, it's interesting. Uh, They would say that he's not actually addressing real teachers, but people who might become teachers and telling them not to do so. Uh, So all of us, he would say, need to be aware of, of how we talk and the power of our words and the influence that we have, which is all true. I, again, I do think that there's uh, ways that we can get to this application without stripping the text of its proper contextual rootedness. It seems to me best that James is, in fact, talking to leaders, but that doesn't uh, leave us um, it doesn't leave us out in the cold. There's there's ways that we can apply this to ourselves when we read the passage in this more generalized way, where we're included. I think it's important for us to pause and to consider our lives for a moment. Do you live out a wisdom that is first of all pure and then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere? Do you live up to that standard? Another way to frame this is, are you a peacemaker? Now, I know I'm I'm catching you at a tough time because everywhere you look, there's opportunities to criticize, to demean, to demoralize, to be consumed by envy, to manipulate the conversation, to feel better about ourselves by reducing the humanity of others, by stripping them of their status as divine image bearers. There's opportunities for us to sow seeds of discord and to encourage every evil act, even within our own community. The low-hanging fruit of our moment is very, very apparent. Whether we're talking about the pandemic or the election or any number of political issues, there's an opportunity for us to criticize, to dehumanize, to categorize, to polarize. Because here's the deal, we don't all think exactly the same on all the things. And we are all pretty smart, so we read stuff that makes us feel wise and understanding. So when someone challenges us, how do we react? What sort of wisdom do we enact? What sort of wisdom do we live out? It's too easy, I believe, to conclude, I'm smart, you're stupid. I'm right, you're wrong. I'm good, you're bad. I'm wise, you're not. We're seduced by this division and discord. And when we reflect on what James describes as a wisdom from above, again, wisdom that is first of all pure and peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, maybe maybe we find ourselves wanting. Maybe it's a result of the last seven or eight months of our lives that have all added up to get us to this place where we have a really short fuse maybe the last seven or eight months is is actually now exposing what has always been there lurking under the surface maybe instead of peacemaking we've opted for a cheaper substitute snide comments side chats anger feelings of entitlement and discord not peace if this happens here in our own community what does it look like with people that we don't know people that we don't feel any obligation to love. In those situations, it's extremely hard to exhibit a wisdom that is first of all pure and then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. When I was preparing this talk, I kept feeling a pull toward the comfortable middle, a pull towards avoidance of the issues, a pull towards keeping all of my thoughts to myself, It's easiest, in my mind, it's easiest to create peace or a cheap substitution of peace when we bite our tongues, when we change the subject, when we make excuses for others and why they think the things that they do. But this isn't what James is peddling. He's not encouraging us towards a spineless stand in the middle. Everything is a-okay. We don't need to fight for justice because it'll hurt our relationships. He's not not fighting for that sort of wisdom. In fact, James concludes, when we live out a wisdom from above, a wisdom that is first of all pure and peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, when we do that, these traits, they show up in the real world and we will reap a harvest of righteousness. You don't reap good fruit when you avoid. You, you just shove all the old rotten fruit under the rug. You don't create peace. It's just hurt that hasn't been dealt with. It's just avoidance. James says a wisdom from above will reap a harvest of righteousness. Now, what in the world does that mean? It, it sounds really churchy on the surface. However we understand the reference in in this passage, whether it's teachers or everybody, there were some jealous and manipulative people steering the ship straight into the rocks. They were angry. They were envious. They were bitter. They were being divisive and creating disorder to the point of threatening the life of the community. They were not seeking peace. And what James is saying in response to that is real godly wisdom will do the hard work. It will act rightly. That's the harvest of righteousness. It will act rightly for the sake of relationships, even when it's hard. It will not be silent. It will not avoid. It will not let strife and contention rule in their communities. It will call out and it will call in. And in so doing, it will create a peaceful environment. You cannot live in the comfortable middle of avoidance and live out this passage and enact a wisdom from above. It's impossible to do that. So this is the call for leaders and members and every follower of Jesus. If we are truly wise and understanding, we must show it by our good lives, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. And this is wisdom. That's first of all pure and peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. And this wisdom, this will result in acts of justice and the pursuits of peace. As James often does for us, he puts a mirror in front of our faces for us to assess the type of wisdom that we enact, the type of influence that we bring to the table, the type of speech patterns that we employ in the world, and hopefully When we do the hard work of self-assessment through prayer and through the Spirit's leading, we will see our shortcomings and we will move past them, trusting that God will endow us with a wisdom that comes from above.